Radio. Confession. What, why, and how. A talk by Father Michael Bistoo at the Immaculate Mission School held at St. Thomas Beckett Parish in Lewisham, Sydney. Um, what I'm going to share with you today is um, just a compilation of um, something from a book I've written on the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And just to give you a brief idea of where the books have evolved from, um, I think most of us are aware of what the Sacrament of Reconciliation takes away, namely sin. But how often do we look at the Sacrament of Reconciliation in terms of what it gives us? Hence the title of the book, which, um, has, which I wrote some years ago, called The Gift of Confession. Um, a gift because the major kind of um, angle I was taking in the book is to look at what the sacrament gives us. Um, and I think that's certainly uh, a much more welcome um, alternative to look at the sacrament than simply thinking, oh, well, what kind of things do I need to get rid of? Um, because it's, it's a personal encounter with Christ and... Uh, it's in a very special um, and a very touching way that we encounter Christ in this particular sacrament. And so it's certainly befitting for us to look at this sacrament in that, in that particular light. Um, what are the ways in which we can be touched by Christ in this sacrament? Um, so that's what inspired me to, um, to write the book. It, it contains uh, 25 bite-sized chapters, and each chapter focuses upon a particular benefit that we receive from the sacrament. We certainly don't have time to go through all those today. Um, I'm just going to be giving you just the bare basics. <clears throat> and I thought it might be a good thing just to give this talk in question and answer format because many of us have many questions about this particular sacrament um, given that uh, it's a kind of a sacrament which has fallen out of sorts with a number of people over the last few decades we speak about how it was very common for people to frequent the sacraments. In fact, not just this one, but all the sacraments, including the Mass. Um, so it's like anything else which falls out of regular practice. Um, people often begin to have questions about it. So let's have a look at the first question. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? We can begin with no better place than the Scriptures. We look here what Jesus said. So... We can see here in John's Gospel, in chapter 20, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Notice how Jesus here is, first of all, speaking about how they're going to be receiving the Holy Spirit. So obviously the, the power to forgive sins is come from this gift of the Holy Spirit that he's giving to the apostles. Notice how he also says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what Jesus is saying there, it implies, well, it's more than implicit, that, well, he's expecting people to confess their sins to the priest because how would the priests know which sins to forgive and which sins to retain, unless the sins were confessed. That gives rise to other questions. People might say, well, hang on, well, why would a priest want to uh, uh, retain any sins? Um, certainly it, it gives no pleasure at all for a priest to retain sins, but of course a priest can't do that which Jesus himself can't do. 
and that is to give his forgiveness if a person um, is not able to receive it. And so here we're speaking about how, yes, what Christ does in the sacrament, but like what other sacraments, it does require our own participation in them. And for a person to be able to receive the sacrament of reconciliation validly, the penitent needs to have sorrow, needs to um, have contrition. And contrition comes from the Latin word which means um, the wearing down of that which is hardened. And it's the disposition by which we overcome the, um, um, all those things which gave rise to our sinfulness to begin with. So the... Um, uh, the Maybe to give an example there, say for example, um, with the testimony you've just heard, um, the person came to confession, confessed all those things, and then the priest said, well, are you prepared to, to avoid these things in the future? And the person said, oh, well, I'm living with my boyfriend, and well, I'm not really prepared to move out. Um, uh, I'm not too sure if I can, Father. Well, of course, the priest can't really give absolution, can he? Because the person needs to be adequately sorrowed, to have that firm purpose of amendment and to avoid those sins in the future. Um, we also see here from Matthew's Gospel some words which uh, Matthew recalls that Jesus says, I will give you, he's speaking here to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, it's interesting that the word he uses here for loose is the word um, in Latin, absolvere. And that's where we get the word absolution from. So when we receive absolution, that's that special prayer that the, the priest prays where we receive God's forgiveness in this sacrament, we are loosed from our sins. And so you can imagine someone dragging a ball and chain behind them and how encumbered they are by this big ball and chain. The moment that they are loosed, it's like someone unshackling that chain and then they can walk free. The whole sense in which we are freed from our sins, we are loosed. Um, so we get that, that gets that strong sense there in, in Matthew's Gospel as well. Notice how similar to what we see in John's Gospel, that it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is breathing the Holy Spirit upon them. Likewise here we see how Jesus is speaking of a, this power now being analogous to the to keys which are going to be able to open the doors of heaven. So if I was to give you an analogy, um, we've got Sarah here in front of me. I'm digging into my pockets to see if I can, here we are. I've just given Sarah my car keys. Now Sarah, um, you've now got my car keys. What, what, what are you now able to do? Um, I could drive your car. And what else could you do? Could you, like... There's people around you. I mean, does that give you a clue? I could give them a ride somewhere. You could let other people into the car as well. So here is, a, this is an amazing thing to fathom. Jesus has not just given someone some car keys, not that they had cars back then, but he's given them the keys of the kingdom of heaven, given them the keys of, of heaven itself. So um, I guess the, the only area where this analogy breaks down, like for example, a car key, for example, is that the apostles can't use that key for themselves. So a priest can't go to himself to confession and say to himself, I absolve you. Like, he, can't, he can't bless himself. It, it, it's, it's the keys that can only be used for others. <clears throat> we look at the Old Testament here too because this also helps us to 
have a greater appreciation for the biblical basis of this sacrament. But here we see that the Jews confess their sins to John the Baptist. Now, St. John the Baptist is in the New Testament, but is in transition from the Old into the New. We read here in Matthew's Gospel, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the, about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So notice here that these, uh, the Jews have no qualms about coming up to St. John the Baptist. He's making a very clear reference to the pouring of water, to the cleansing of sins. And what are they doing? They're confessing their sins to him. According to the instructions God gave to Moses in the Old Testament, a sinner had to give an animal to a priest who would offer it as a sacrifice for his sin. We see that in chapter 5 of the book of Numbers. When he gave this animal to the priest, the priest decided according to the gravity of the sin whether the animal presented for sacrifice was of sufficient value or not. And we can see that in chapter 5 of the book of Leviticus. Got a question for you. There is no mention of having to confess one's sins here. Or is there? Put your hand up if you think there is some reference to the confession of sins there. Madonna, why would you say so? Uh, because it says that the priest had to um, see if the sacrifice was sufficient enough according to his sin. So he would have had to know what the sin was and he had to decide whether it was good enough or not. Confession. Very good, very good answer. I'm sure for everyone else who had their hands up, that was something, no doubt, that you had noticed yourselves. So a little wonder why people were already in the habit of confessing their sins and had no qualms about coming up to St. John the Baptist, because when, and especially when Jesus himself then asked um, his apostles to make themselves available for the sacrament that he instituted, the sacrament of reconciliation, the Jews who became um, the first Christians, they would not have seen this sacrament as some kind of startling innovation <clears throat> because we can see the groundwork already there in the Old Testament. During the lifetime of the apostles, let's look at that period too. Both St. John and St. James tell us that those who confess their sins will receive God's forgiveness. We can see that in chapter 5 of um, the letter of St. James. We can also see that in the first letter of St. John, chapter 1. St. James's words provide particular clarity because he prescribes self-help for everything other than sin. For example, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. But for the forgiveness of sins, he said presbyters, that are, that, that's the, um, the Greek word that he uses there for priests, he says that presbyters should be called upon. So we see a... Um, an obvious distinction there, that when people are needing to be reconciled to God, that we have um, presbyters to assist us so that we can know in our own hearts that we are now reconciled with God. Another good question is, can God forgive me without this sacrament? Any thoughts on the matter? What, what are your thoughts, yes or no? I would say it's possible. But then I'd also say that it's not possible because if it was possible, then we wouldn't need um, 
reconciliation from a priest if we could just go directly straight to God. Good. Any other thoughts? I'd say it's definitely possible because God is not bound by the sacraments. However, um, he chooses, he asked us to do it in this particular way to give us um, a more solid understanding that we have been forgiven. However, if someone can't go to confession for whatever reason and they end up dying, but they did want to go to confession, then God would still be, be able to forgive their sins even though they weren't able to make it to receive the actual sacrament. Good answer. Excellent. We're going back to the first thing you mentioned. Um, the sacraments are for us. The sacraments, I mean, Jesus gave us the sacraments not because God needs them, but because we do. Um, so it's for that reason we can see that God is not restricted by the sacraments. But in keeping um, with your answer, yes, we can see that it's every much that God has our good in mind, and, and we therefore do well to make sure we can have recourse to them. So we can see that God is not restricted to the sacraments in forgiving sins, that first point on the PowerPoint slide there, as I mentioned there. Um, we can see that the perfect act of contrition, especially at the point of death, um, will enable us to receive God's forgiveness. Um, look at the third point. Christ himself is at work in the sacraments. Now, keeping this in mind can be a very helpful thing because it's going to give light to what we're about to see in the next few points. When we say that Christ himself is at work in the sacraments, it means that he can achieve a whole lot more than what we can try to do on human effort alone ourselves. Keep that in mind as we go to the next point. We can see that attrition, which is the Latin word for imperfect sorrow, Attrition outside the sacrament of reconciliation cannot obtain the forgiveness of serious sins. So, you know, if we, if we don't have a perfect act of contrition outside of the sacrament of reconciliation, so for example, in a person's personal prayer, oh God, please forgive me, um, then how can that person be assured that they will be reconciled with God? Attrition is enough to dispose us to obtain God's forgiveness in confession. So here we see a contrasting point, that outside the sacrament of reconciliation, attrition is not sufficient. Whereas if we don't have perfect contrition, but at least we have some sorrow, um, that will be sufficient enough to dispose us to receive God's forgiveness when we come to the priest and receive the sacrament of reconciliation. Why so? Because it gets back to that third point, that Christ himself is at work in the sacraments. And he can achieve a whole lot more than what we will be able to do on our own. I guess it comes back to the merit of what it is to encounter Christ. A person might come into the sacrament of reconciliation, perhaps not really have perfect contrition, but it's in the very process of encountering Christ in the sacrament that those dispositions are rendered more perfect. That they, In fact, sometimes as a priest, I've heard people confessing their sins rather nonchalantly, but then during the process of the, receiving the sacrament, then I can hear te tears beginning to flow. A person's very deeply touched. I'm sure, but in those moments, I'm absolutely sure it's nothing what I've done, I'm, but, but only totally conscious that it's Christ himself who's at work in the sacrament. Um, that sixth point, we can never be sure if we have perfect sorrow for our sins. So it's in that point that it's certainly in keeping with uh, 
with humility, that it really is presumptuous on our part to think, oh, I don't need to go to confession because God's going to forgive me. I'll just say, you know, please God forgive me in my prayer. But how can we, we be sure if we have that perfect sorrow? So, conversely, think of the great assurance that we receive, the great comfort and consolation of not leaving it to guesswork, that we know as sure as our faith is that speaks to us, uh, uh, Christ speaks to us in our faith, that he's now speaking to us audibly through the ministry of the priest and we can hear in our own heart of hearts, I absolve you from your sins. I guess in summary, that seventh point, we can see how that's all summed up in the catechism um, where we read in paragraph 1497, individual and integral confession is of serious sins, followed by absolution, remains the only ordinary means of reconciliation with God and with the church. I think that explanation that we've just given helps you to understand why it is that it's referred to as the ordinary means. We can see that St. John the Apostle himself says, quote, there is sin which is mortal. You might hear some people saying things, oh, there's no such thing as mortal sin. I mean, mortal sin might exist, but it only happens when you kill your grandmother. Um, but but, <laughs> but we, St. John is not mincing words here. He's saying, that, well, hang on, well, no, there are sins that we call serious, which are mortal. They're called mortal as such because just as there can be physical death, such as a mortal wound that we sustain, so too there can be a spiritual death. Commenting upon these words of St. John, Pope John Paul II, our blessed um, um, Pope John Paul II, he said, obviously the concept of death here is a spiritual death. It is a question of the loss of the true life or eternal life, which for, God, which for John is knowledge of the Father and the Son and communion and intimacy with, with, with them. That was um, those um, great words of his in... Uh, that, that was those words of his in that great encyclical of his, Reconciliatio et Penitentia, otherwise known as Reconciliation and Penance. We look here at the effects of mortal sin. It breaks our covenant and communion with God. It deprives us of sanctifying grace, God's friendship, and consequently eternal happiness. We also, what also takes place is the loss of charity, I'm not talking about here about uh, that we don't not, not not as if we no longer have capacity to to be loving towards others, but that it's uh, a a loss of 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 something so essential to God Himself, because we see how God is love, and a person who is not in the state of grace, who's lost the spiritual life within them, the life of God's charity itself, lacks the ability to love others for God's own sake we see how when a person is going the wrong direction, if they do have any capacity to love, it's more of a kind of a self-interested kind of love. So if we really want to grow and go places in our relationship with Christ, then there's another reason as to why we can see that the sacrament of reconciliation is going to give great assistance in that regard. Um, Fourthly, it kills divine life within the soul. Just as a body without a soul is dead, a soul without, without sanctifying grace is dead. And this is why a sin of this kind is called mortal. Um, Dr. Scott Hahn, who's a famous um, um, biblical theologian, he said, if doctors could do for the body what priests do for the soul, they would be worked to death. (laughs) You think about it, very wise words there. 
What does a priest do to the soul? He brings about a spiritual resurrection. Now, if a doctor could do for your body what the priest does for your soul, they would have no time to, to scratch themselves. Um, so I thought they were very good words coined by uh, Dr. Hahn. Christ asked St. John to write to the church in Sardis, quote, I know all about you, how you are reputed to be alive and yet are dead. Very strong words there. I guess we can see a very close reference there to how uh, that there are sins that, have, that, that do, do indeed have that effect. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus himself describes serious sin as a spiritual death. For in speaking to the elder brother, the father says, Your brother here was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. We look now at the next question, what constitutes mortal sin? First of all, it needs to involve serious matter. Um, we'll look at, in greater detail what these things are in a minute. There's three of them. Serious matter. The second is sufficient knowledge. And thirdly, deliberate consent. Now, serious sin cannot take place unless all three of these things are, are present. Not just one or two, but all three. First of all, let's look at serious matter. Um, it basically consists of a major violation of any one of the Ten Commandments. Or at least that's a certainly a good place to begin in terms of how we can see in the Scriptures those kind of things which point out to us things which are serious of their nature. We often need to refer to other parts of Scripture and to the Church's teachings for a more comprehensive understanding of what constitutes serious matter because the Ten Commandments are only a basic moral guide. So looking at these other areas can be helpful. Um, sinning against the theological virtues of faith, hope and charity in a major way. That can also be, um, that can also constitute serious matter. The reason why is because those theological virtues, well first of all they're called theological because they come from, they come from God. So theos is the word for God. Um, and uh, they, they return to God. They have God as their object. So we receive the gift of faith from God and the gift of faith helps us to go on our pilgrimage towards God. We receive the gift of hope from God and it helps us to hope in God. And of course charity, we looked at it that, that we're just, just a few moments earlier, where we see how God himself is charity. And so when we receive charity, we receive God himself and we're able to participate in the intimacy of his own divine life. So if we sin against any of those virtues, then that's something very serious because we are rejecting God himself in the process of doing so. Um, notice how it says there in a major way. So for example, um, you know, if I was rather selfish at the dinner table and I um, took first helping to the food and perhaps was uncharitable to others around me and was insensitive to their own need for food, um, it's not going to be really a serious, um, it's not going to be something which is a serious matter, is it? But if it was in a major way where I was hoarding all the food and there were people out in the streets and I was doing nothing for them because they were dying of hunger, then of course that's something serious of its nature because it's a major kind of violation there. To give you another example, say for example there's someone who is in serious need and you have 
the resources, the time and the expertise to be able to help them, and you do nothing. Then, of course, that's something which um, would be another example of that. An example of sinning against faith would be, say, for someone who's publicly teaching heresy. Um, sinning against hope would be someone who is um, who's despairing. Um, someone who, uh, who knows that there's an opportunity to be reconciled to God, but chooses not to out of despair. Um, another thing which constitutes uh, serious matter is seriously failing to observe any of the precepts of the church. If we had more time, perhaps we could take you through those. Another um, um, area which we see in the catechism which speaks of serious matter is the sins that cry out to heaven. And if we had more time, we could look at that. But you can look at that up yourself, if you like, in the catechism, paragraph number 1867. We see that St. Paul provides us with other sins which constitute serious matter. And we read this in, in um, his letter to the Galatians. So if you have a quick look at that there, we can see he's mentioning fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, otherwise known as divisiveness, uh, envy, drunkenness, carousing, otherwise known as rioting, and the like. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I think most of these things here are self-explanatory. Sometimes people can have questions about some of the things he mentions, for example, party spirit, divisiveness. Why would that be something which is a serious sin? It gets back to um, the great insight of St. Paul of the church being the body of Christ, that uh, if there is any kind of divisiveness amongst us, then how is it that we can have that cohesion by which we can indeed um, be faithful representatives of Christ in the church as his members of, the, of his mystical body. It also goes back to the insights of, of St. John um, where he records uh, Jesus saying um, when, he, when he had sent people out to represent him as his faithful followers. Um, in that beautiful and very intimate prayer to his father, he says, Father, I pray that they all may be one. And he continues to say, so that the world may know that it was you who sent me. And so if we don't really come together as one and we are divisive, um, then that can be a serious matter because we are causing scandal towards others who otherwise perhaps would have an opportunity to come closer to Christ themselves. We also see that the capital sins are sins which constitute serious matter. These are serious sins of pride, greed, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, and laziness. Now we'll make a distinction here between major and minor violations. This is an important distinction lest we also perhaps um, come to the wrong conclusions. I'll give you an example to illustrate this distinction. A person who plucks a few grapes and eats them while shopping in a grocery store has broken the seventh commandment you shalt not steal. Now that's, that's true, we understand that because it's one of the commandments. Question, do you think this involves serious matter though? I see someone shaking his head. Of course not. It's sure, he's, he's, he's violated the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. 
But it doesn't constitute a serious matter because it's not a major violation of that commandment. You might remember the very first slide we had there in this section. Um, it was referring to a major violation of one of the Ten Commandments. This is a violation, but it's a minor violation. So we can see how it's not something which constitutes serious matter. If someone stole enough grapes from a shop or a vineyard that has an impact on the owner's livelihood, would this constitute serious matter? Now I can see people nodding their heads. Yes, I think you got it right. That's good. Another question. So stealing a loaf of bread from the average family home would not constitute serious matter. But would stealing bread from a poor and destitute person constitute serious matter? Any shakings of the head or nods? Yes. Yes, I can see a few people nodding there. It would, because it's the only bit of food, the only bit of morsel of food this poor person has. So we can see that that um, this distinction between major and minor is not so much something which is something which is measurable, something which is quantifiable, but that which is relative to the how it's going to be um, having an impact um, upon others. A serious matter can also be indirectly related to the Ten Commandments. And Jesus made this clear when he said, and we see this um, in, in Matthew's Gospel, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. Using strong words there, isn't he? So we can see that in no way, shape or form is this person actually killing someone. He's not thrusting a sword through anyone and physically killing them. But we can see that these things that Jesus is speaking of still do indirectly relate to the, to the, um, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, the fifth commandment, because of the way that it's affecting this person. And it's obviously in a serious way because it's killing his spirits. You fool. You know, imagine we reduce someone to tears. Then you can see that there is that, that violation of that particular commandment in relation to the harm that is caused. Blasphemy constitutes serious matter even when the second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, uh, is violated in a major way. The reason for this is because blasphemy, however small, is always serious matter because it constitutes a direct contempt for the infinite majesty of God himself. So there's no point in trying to measure out the difference between major and minor here because of that, uh, of that reality. Likewise, minor violations against the sixth and the ninth commandments always involve serious matter. We owe this understanding to what Jesus said to those who considered that impure thoughts do not constitute serious matter. You might remember those words also in Matthew's Gospel where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, analogous to the other, other example where a person may not have actually thrusted a sword into anyone and not killed them, but can still violate that commandment by killing someone's spirits, then likewise we can see that there's a similar thing going on here in relation to the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. On this note, the church teaches, according to Christian and church teaching, 
and as a right reason, uh, sorry, and as right reason acknowledges, sexual morality encompasses such important human values that every violation of it is objectively grave. Um, so we can see that in the church's document there, Persona Humana. That was um, in 1975. Further reasons why minor violations against chastity constitute serious matter can be seen in quite a copious number of references in Scripture. If we had more time, we could look at those. But for those of you who are interested, you can see them. They're listed there on the slide. Um, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Matthew, 15, Matthew chapter 15 and 19, Romans chapter 13, Colossians chapter 11 and St. Paul's uh, other letter to the Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Another point worthy of our consideration is that our human sexuality is an extraordinary gift by which God has made us in his own image and likeness, as we see there in uh, chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. And that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're speaking about something sacred here. So another, another reason which we can see the, um, the reason why there's no distinction made between major and minor in relation to the sixth and the ninth commandments. And just to conclude that section, we can see the Catechism, paragraph 2332, says that our sexuality is, quote, by no means something purely biological, but concerns the innermost being of the human person. And another reason why it warrants no distinction between major and minor. So we looked at there at serious matter. Let's look now at sufficient knowledge and deliberate consent. Sufficient knowledge is that uh, sufficient knowledge that the thought, word, action or omission at hand is seriously sinful. So in other words, we need to know that what is at hand is, is as such. With deliberate consent, this is consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. So you can possibly think of a number of examples where a person would not have sufficient consent to be a deliberate choice. It might be when a person's asleep, it might be when a person's under duress, someone's got a gun to their head. Um, There's just a few examples that we can speak of there. Sufficient knowledge and deliberate consent can sometimes be diminished and or inhibited by ignorance, immaturity, fear, depression, psychological imbalance, trauma from being abused, anger, coercion, compulsion, passion, substance addition, and the force of habit. Of course, if we try to willy-nilly just try to apply these things to our own experience, we could err. So it's important that we make sure that if we are not, if, if, if we have any question about to what degree we gave consent to any kind of thing that may be immoral, that it's still good for us to mention those things in confession because the priest can give us for the guidance amongst them. We look now at venial sin. Now, venial comes from the Latin word which means pardonable. So it's the kind of sin we don't need to go to confession to receive God's forgiveness. However, having said that, the church has always, over the centuries, uh, highlighted the merits of, of what's referred to as a devotional confession, where it's with devotion a person still identifies these areas of their life in confession as a sincere means of being able to grow closer to Christ uh, in and through them. So having identified mortal sin, St. John went on to say, quote, there is sin which is not mortal. 
And uh, that's in that same section in his first letter, uh, chapter 5. The church calls this kind of sin venial, as we've mentioned there, because it can be, we can receive pardon from that outside of the sacrament of reconciliation. A minor violation of the Ten Commandments, we can see that that's one of the things that constitutes this sin. Not a major violation, but a minor violation. Or a major violation of the commandments committed without sufficient knowledge or deliberate consent. Venial sins do not separate us from God, but they do stunt the growth of relationship with him. So it's important for us not to pass off um, any venial sins and um, belittle them to such an extent where we think, oh, well, um, I'm not committing any mortal sins, so I'm doing pretty hunky-dory. It's important that we never turn a blind eye to them because they can indeed stunt our growth. The Catechism, paragraph 1863, states, Venial sin weakens charity. It manifests a disordered affection for created goods. It impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of the virtues and the practice of the moral good. It merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. There's probably some big words in there that some of you may not be able to understand. So when we start talking about uh, it merits temporal punishment, we're talking about... um, you know, some people uh, might die and go straight to heaven. But please God, we'll be amongst them, of course, but uh, there are many, of course, who might have to go through a bit of dry cleaning before they get there. So we're speaking there of, um, of, of purgatory. So if we are trying to purify our life, even of venial sin, because not just serious sin, but even venial sin, can bring about the need for, um, for temporal punishment. So we're doing well to try to, uh, to grow closer and closer to Christ so that the moment we pass in this world for the next, we can open our eyes and be face to face before him. The last question here is, what will the priest think of me if I confess this or that sin? Why is acknowledging our faults so difficult? Well, I think that there are four main things um, that we could do well to focus on here. First of all, is that so often we can have mistaken beliefs. We can think that we're the, only, uh, we can, we're the only person in the world who sins. So I think that it's important for us to realize that um, we all share that common lot of our need for God's um, pardon and peace. There's the embarrassment. I think it's true to our human experience that it's normal for us to have a sense of shame and embarrassment when we come in to, to confess our sins. And then there's the certain attachments. We can be aware that something is sinful, but it's due to perhaps the attachment to it that we, um, we uh, perhaps and also lack the humility to ask for help. Then there is fear where, we, where we're afraid that we're going to be misunderstood, such that you know, if we start uh, talking about our, uh, our sinfulness, that we're going to be misrepresenting the good in us if we start talking about all of our weaknesses, that the, um, the priest will then begin to judge us unfairly and look down upon us. Having named those things, I think it's good, it's good for us to name them, to put them out there. Having named them, can I assure you that in as much as these are a reality in terms of our lived experience as human beings, they need not be obstacles. Um, certainly from a priest's perspective in hearing confessions, yeah, sure, from the beginning, from the penitence perspective, it's sure it is very humbling. 
But have you also considered how humbling it is for the priest? Because of the, the trust and the confidence that's invested in him? As a person comes forward in, uh, to confess their sins, the priest can really feel that Christ is filling his own shoes. It's a very humbling thing for him to, be made av- to make himself available, that Christ can use him as his own instrument to bring his pardon and peace to those who are um, coming for the sacrament. And the priest himself, he knows from his experience on the other side of the grill, as being a penitent himself, of just how much um, that experience of encountering Christ and knowing his pardon and peace can be such a treasurable thing. We see that uh, St. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, he says, priests are not immune to temptation and sin, and that a priest can sympathize with those who are ignorant or uncertain because he too lives in the limitation of weakness. And as we also read in St. Paul's letter to, first letter to Corinthians, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Um, St. John Chrysostom said that perhaps the reason why God wanted us to have the sacrament of reconciliation with priests rather than with angels is because precisely because an angel doesn't experience temptation as we do as human beings. Perhaps they could be very um, angry and intense upon us and rain thunderbolts down upon us when we go to confession. So um, I think it's, uh, it's something significant that the priest himself knows his need for God's um, grace and uh, God's love and his pardon and peace in his own life. And to finish, the priest takes delight in the new year, not the old year. When you think about it, um, sure, there's confession of sins involved in the sacrament of reconciliation, but it's also a confession of faith. It's quite an edifying thing. Sometimes I hear people saying things like, oh, Father, it must be such a morbid experience of sitting in that confessional. You might be there for over an hour sometimes, and you're hearing all this negativity. Um, such people are quite surprised when I say, well, no, I actually find it a very edifying thing. Because, you know, there's the, the glass half empty, but there's also the glass half full. The glass half full perspective is this. Sure, there's confession of sins, but it's also a confession of faith. When a person confesses their sins, they're more or less saying, Father, these are the areas of my life where I want to become more like Christ. That's something very uplifting and very edifying. And it's especially edifying for those who are really aspiring to grow closer to God. And they might identify things that you might identify as first thing is first see as trivial. And yet you see behind them a sincere resolve, a sincere desire that person to grow in their intimacy and love for God, which is something very, very edifying. To conclude with, I think it's also helpful because people might say, well, Father, I really, I really appreciate you taking me through the biblical basis of the sacrament of reconciliation, talking about all the nuts and bolts, talking about the experience of what it is to go and all that kind of things, but I'm still afraid. My answer to this is simply this. Draw an analogy to other experiences in life. For example, there might be a person in your life that you find very difficult to relate to. Someone may have hurt you, or maybe it's just, just that you just don't click with that person. Um, the person may have hurt you in some way. And there's this real stumbling block because you just don't feel any affection towards that person. And so you're reluctant to take this first step to try to do some good deed towards them. The reason why this happens is because so often we make the mistake of thinking that feeling, so, sorry, that, um, 
that actions will follow feelings. So a person can think to themselves, well, or maybe it might be even an unconscious kind of thinking, well, when I feel more benevolent towards this person, then I'll do a good and, and kind deed towards them. It's unfortunate because the reality is the opposite. Feelings follow actions, not the other way around. So if you look back on some of your past experiences, consult them. and Look at areas in your life where perhaps there have been these people who have been, you know, maybe rubbed you the wrong way, and yet despite that, you've gone out of your way to be benevolent towards them, to do something kind and charitable towards them. Lo and behold, you might actually begin to grow a particular affinity towards this person, even affection for this person, a kind of thing that you never dreamed possible. Why? Because feelings follow actions. Now, by the same token, we can apply this same principle to the sacrament of reconciliation. If you're afraid and thinking, oh, I don't have what it takes to go in there and confess my sins, think that feelings follow actions, not the other way around. If a person thinks, well, when I feel ready, then I'll go. No, just do it. <laughs> because feelings follow actions. And it's for this reason that we should never wonder why that when a person goes into the confessional, they might look disturbed, but when they come out, you'll see that beautiful, peaceful, smiley face because feelings follow actions and not the other way around. That was Father Michael Destoo with Confession, What, Why and How. For more from the Immaculata Mission School 2013, visit cradio.org.au.